Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. So good to see each and every one of you. So thankful you're here. I'm going to have that, that first song drum beat in my head, like I think for eternity now. Like, oh my goodness. That was a good time. My feet are kind of like on fire now. But uh, anyway, I'm so excited to be in uh, this series, Jesus is Greater, going through the book of Hebrews together. We're uh, picking up in chapter three today. And I want to remind you of something. The reason we've titled this sermon series, Jesus is Greater, uh, really is because the author has continued to come back to that theme. It's really the theme of the book. And uh, the, the theme verse, if you will, is out of Hebrews chapter one, where it says, this shows that the son, Jesus, is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Jesus is greater. I hope this has been encouraging to you. Really, this has been one of those kinds of series that's just been really helpful, encouraging. Some challenge, I think today may have more challenge perhaps than those so far. Because this idea today is what does it mean that Christ has a greater glory? That he deserves more worship. More glory, more honor, more praise. The thing is, we're really, really good at this thing called glory. We're really good at this thing called worship. Now, I know this isn't a word we use daily. It's not a word you'll hear in the workplace, really. Glory, worship, these words are not common. But the idea of honor or glory is magnificence or great beauty. And we have such a tendency to give that to someone or something, sometimes ourselves, something that's priority in our life. We're extremely good at honoring things with our admiration, with our words, and with our pocketbooks, with our our wallets. Now, perhaps I want to give you something uh, current, and I don't know, maybe this is something you're sick of hearing about, but I can't, I like this time of year, fall, is like my favorite time of year for, for a lot of reasons. Number one, the weather, love it. I can, I, I can take or leave the summers of North Carolina. Y'all might love them. Some of you came from the north. Like, thank the Lord for summers. I can't stand them. I'm sick of them. It's too hot. So fall shows up. I'm like, hallelujah. And then fall brings this thing that some of you dig with me called football. And I love football. And I will watch it. It doesn't matter who's playing. I'm watching it. It's in the background at all times. And so I can't watch a football game right now, though, without hearing about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And some of you are like, oh man, not in church too, Jonathan, I'm sorry. But this, this thing called glory and honor, boy, we're really good at like just advertising it like none other. Did y'all know that Taylor Swift will be a, million, a billionaire soon? A billionaire soon. Her Eras, Eras tour is generated, said to generate about $2 billion globally. That's a number that I can't even get my head around. That's an insane number. She has a movie, y'all, three-hour-long movie about her tour in the theaters. And I've heard about people that have already seen it twice. Hallelujah. Travis Kelsey, on the other hand, is only worth $30 million only and has two Super Bowl rings. And the Swifties apparently have caused his social media presence to increase 400% over the last couple months. Isn't that crazy? And the NFL is loving this. They're, apparently, their numbers, their viewership has gone through the roof because of this one person, this one young lady. We're really good 
at putting our glory where it counts. We watch it. We pay to view it. We, we are all about it because guess what? And I'm not here to like, if you like Tyler Swift, I don't care. That You do you. People make music and people like different things. Whatever. What I'm trying to get across is we are extremely good at giving glory. We were made for it. We were absolutely made for it. How do I know this? Well, I could come from a lot of places. First of all, I could just show you by experience we were made for it. But biblically speaking, it's obvious that God made us for this. He made us for himself that we would know him, revel in him, love him. That's why God made us for worship. And even if you don't admire, you know, some athlete or some artist, we all have a tendency, if you, all you got to do is see a, a magnificent sunrise or, or sunset or a mountain rock, a range topped with beautiful icy peaks. Like you picture whatever your ultimate n- nature experience is, that is a moment of glory where you go, this is amazing. We all do it. And we take pictures of that. Some of you like food so much that you take pictures of your food that you're eating to share it with the world. Look how good my food is. And the rest of us are like, well, I'm hungry, but I didn't get an invite. And This is what we do. We're great. We have an eye for beauty. And a lot of these things are subjective. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but we have a tendency, we have to admit this, church, we have a tendency to lower our eyes to lesser reflections of God's glory. We just, we do. Maybe it's our wives, maybe it's our husbands, our kids, maybe it's our careers. We have a tendency to just slightly lower our eyes. And these things are wonderful. These things are reflections, in fact, often of God's glory. The family itself, a reflection of God's glory, but it's not God's glory. That's what the sermon's going to be about today, is this idea of setting our eyes again on Him. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1. This is really the basis of his beginning argument. He says in verse 20, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Listen to this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. We have a tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. So let's set our eyes. Let's refocus today. That's the objective, it seems, of the writer of Hebrews today in chapter 3. That's what the sermon's going to be about. The author here telling Hebrew, Jews, background believers here to closely consider Jesus that he's even more worthy of glory. And he's going to use an example that may be a little foreign to us, but it was right at the heart of it for the Jewish person. He says he's even, his glory is even greater than that of Moses, who is like the ultimate character of their, their story. He is the, the Jew of Jews, if you will. So you insert whatever there for yourself. What is the thing, the placeholder that you're giving the most glory? Christ is more. Christ is more. We consider Jesus to see that his glory is greater than all. And I believe the text is going to give three clear reasons. Let's dig in. Just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. He writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. 
Just an aside there, the word consider is the only command verb in our text today. Consider Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just, I skipped a little bit. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, church, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Why is Jesus worthy of the greatest glory in our lives? Not just some abstract thing that your life would represent that Christ is on top. I give him the priority of my worship. Number one, first reason is because he is the builder of God's house. This is where he begins. And this is a wonderful logical argument. He comes right out of the gate in verse 1 and says, Therefore, that means let's look back. Here's what he's been saying all along. He's building a case that this Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. He is above the angels in his authority. He's above the angels in his power and his glory. But even more, he deserves more glory than the, the lawgiver, the, one, the, the first servant, if you will, in the house of Israel, and that is Moses. He is above him. Therefore, the writer says, consider. Consider this imperative. This word, it might feel, I guess in English, the word consider maybe doesn't quite touch on this detail as heavy as maybe it should. This word has the idea of look intently upon. I mean, consider kind of means that, but like you can consider something and say, eh. No, this is the idea of like study it, Meditate upon it. This is it's catanoia. It's several it's kind of similar to another word we know, metanoia. But this is the idea of observe carefully, simply, like not just a momentary, but but a deep contemplation of a thing. Chuck Swindoll, when writing on this, he says, "Don't just give him a fleeting glance or a a nod. Observe him. Pay attention to him. Get to know him. Get to know your Savior." You want to understand how important he is and, and what he's doing in your life and the purposes he's put out for you and how much more glory he deserves. You've got to get to know him. You've got to get to know him in his word. You've got to spend time with him in conversation and prayer. You have to take time. This, this word here is consider, deeply meditate, contemplate. Now this is one of the most unusual passages in the way it describes Jesus. I couldn't think of another place where he's called the apostle. Normally we, we talk about apostles, we're talking about the 12 and then maybe perhaps even the 70 or the 500. But not Jesus himself, but the word apostle, uh, apostolos simply means one sent. So in the sense here, the writer is saying he was the first, the prototype if you will, the original sent one. Jesus, in fact, says this in John chapter 20, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So I'm the, I'm the original apostle, if you will. 
I'm the bringer of the good news. That's what it means here. may look a little strange to you. And then he's called the high priest, which is also a term almost lower than who Jesus is. And I think that's the argument he's trying to build. Yes, he's the one sent, the apostle. Yes, he's the high priest. But guess what else? He's the builder. he's, He's something more than these things. He is these things. This word high priest has to do with mediation, if you will. Moses, as is described here, is the apostle. He's the sent one, but he's not the high priest in the story. Who's picked for that task? His his relative Aaron is the high priest of the house of of Israel. No, Jesus is, is both of these, though, and more. This is a wild thing that not only is he the one who brings the sacrifice before before the Lord, the judge, he is the sacrifice. This is a fascinating thing. Not only is he the, the, the one who will sacrifice himself for us and take on the sins of the world, he's the one that God sends to be the messenger of that as well. Now, I don't know if this means a lot to you, but when I consider how much God loves me, boy, this really moves my heart. This really moves my heart to think that God did everything necessary because I was that far gone. That's how, that's how foolish I was. And maybe you don't feel like me, but when you're honest, when you really dig deep, you know, I don't think I could have discovered God or loved God or known God truly unless he did all of this on my behalf. Look what he did. He sent himself to bear the message, to be the sacrifice, to be my high priest so that now when I come to Christ and say, look what a mess I'm in, he says, I love you. I've covered you. I'm walking with you. I've sent my Holy Spirit to guide you. He has done all that is necessary that I could be made right with God. I'm so thankful for this. Which means glory. Which means worship. Which means all of my other failings. All the things that have my mind distracted. All of the things I'm struggling with when I would just for a moment consider Jesus. Look up and I go, okay. Everything else just starts to fade so that I can see him and then I can approach all of my it's not that I just shrug off all my other life circumstances it's that when I get my eyes on him I can face these in a way that's actually reasonable and by faith rather than constantly reacting to everything and losing my mind over it no he says consider Jesus the high priest the apostle then he goes on to say he He's the one who, he was faithful to the one who appointed him. That means Jesus was faithful to the very end. In fact, we have this Garden of Gethsemane scene that I think this is somewhat hinting at. There's a moment where Jesus is like, if there's any other way, Lord, do that. But not my will, but yours be done. If this cup could somehow pass from me, let it pass, but not my will. He was faithful to the end, to the the terrible, terrible time he had. Of, of, of beating and terrible time he had of being nailed to a cross. and a, a hard, One of the most just awful ways to, to die. He was faithful to that end. How? Why? Because of us. For us. And that's what he's talking about here. And, so, and Moses, he says, he's not belittling. Don't hear him say this at all. In no way is he belittling Moses. He's saying, you know what? Moses was also faithful to his end. He was faithful in the house of God. He made some mistakes. You can go back and read the Exodus He killed a man. He murdered somebody. Moses was kind of a mess. God told him to do something even later in his life, and he disobeyed and did did something else. He spoke to the rock instead of striking it or something like that in there in the story. But 
this, this is recorded that he is faithful. He was faithful in the house of God. He was not a perfect man, but he was faithful. But Christ is even more. Jesus is even more. And I love verse 3. Verse 3 is really the heart of our text today. It says three words back to back that really just jump out. He was counted worthy. He had much more glory and has more honor. That is a three. That's like the trifecta, if you will, of what it means to worship. I count this idea of worship is that I would count what I'm praising or describing as worthy. That I would give it the glory it's due. So worship in a nutshell is, do I think this thing is worth it? Let me give it what it's worth. It's that simple. And that's what the writer is here saying. He is far more worthy, far more glory. He's the builder. And, that, and that's, the, that's the reason why. I love this logical argument. Look look what Moses did. He, he was faithful in the house of God. He was faithful as a servant in the house of God. But who is more important? The one who serves in the house? or, 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 or the, Rather, the argument he makes here is the one who is the house or the builder of that house. It's a great argument because we, if you come and look at my home, there's some strange things going on at my house. The builder of my house had some wild ideas. And I have since updated things in my own way, and some of those look kind of crazy. Because I'm no carpenter, I'm no builder. And so I've done some things my way. But when you look at the house, you go, that's a really pretty house. But really what you're thinking underneath is the builder. If you see something magnificent, a magnificent piece of art or some sculpture, You say, well, that's very beautiful, but the person you applaud is the one who made it. That's that's why, you you know, a piece of music that you love. You love that that song, but it's the Beatles you love, or whoever, Taylor Swift. Those Swifties in the room. Some of y'all, I'm like, who are those people? I don't know. I'm going to figure that out. Probably the little little ones in the back row there, maybe. I don't know. Um, Just as Michelangelo is much more worthy of the glory of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. You know, when we think of the light bulb, Thomas Edison. You know, when we think of Tesla, Elon Musk, right? Just amazing creators, inventors. Here he's making the argument, and it's a good one, that yes, Moses is is amazing. The the thing that God has built is wonderful. The house of God, what a wonderful thing. The church, what a wonder. It's amazing. Look around the room, people from all walks of life, doing different things, different jobs, different, have different upbringings, and we come into this place. What a wonder that God would bring us together. But you know what's even more wonderful? The builder. The Jesus underneath. The Christ underneath the Christian. You know, the builder of the church. This is what Jesus writes, in fact, or this is what is said in Matthew 16. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter re- replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then replied with this, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell won't prevail. Consider him today. Give him the closest contemplation. Now, How do I apply this? How do I apply that Jesus is the builder? That means I make a move. I make a move to worship and glorify Christ over creation. And this is something you have to wrestle with all on your own. Is what are the things that I have put 
as my ultimate forms of worship that are above my Savior? And how have they so impacted my life that now I'm distracted? I'm really distracted. The the reason I'm struggling and the reason my prayer life is in shambles, the reason I have trouble in my relationships is because seated on my worship throne is not Christ, but something else. I have this great dream, Jonathan. I have this dream that one day I will be A. Fill in the blank. I'm going to be the greatest this. And that is what's on the throne of my worship. Everything I do, all of the classes I take, all of the money I spend, every decision I make, even the decisions, the relationships I choose is so that I might reach that end and I feel lost. It's because that throne is way too big for that item. It's way too big. All my whole, I've spent my whole life trying to find my mate, trying to find that one I can spend life with, that person who will make me happy for life and make me content. And that person doesn't exist. That void in your heart is too big. Christ over creation. How many of us are worshiping the building rather than the builder? We're so satisfied with, with our careers or whatever until we're not go, wow, what's missing? Here's what's missing. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Meditate on him. Christ over creation. Here's the second reason that the author gives. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word. He's the fulfillment of God's word. Now, the the play that he makes here in verse 5 and 6 is this idea that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. This word servant here is an unusual word. I had to bring it to light for you just because it does apply in the English. It's the Greek word therapon, which is where we get the word therapy. It's one of the only places in the text that the word servant is here translated from therapon. This means he's... An attendant in the sense of of a therapist, if you will. (laughs) He's the one who brought, hey, house of Israel, like there's there's this this God. Like (laughs) I kind of picture it this way. Like Moses is the guy, you're sitting in the chair, and it's like, how do you feel today? You know, like that. What describe the way you feel, you know, describe your emotions. And he brings this thing, all right, I, I hear your problems, I hear what you're struggling with, oh Israel. See. The God of the universe. See his law. See the wonder. And now, that's what he's done. And he's been faithful in that. But Jesus has gone far and above that. He's fulfilled everything that the good therapy, if you will, the good, the, the good service of Moses has done. Moses was discharged to be this, this servant. And it's described here in, a, in the very same way it's described in Numbers chapter 12, where it writes, it says this, Not so... With my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. And so really, Hebrews is repeating that theme. He's been a faithful one as a servant. But he's not the fulfillment of those words. Again, it's another logical picture of the one who brings the good news isn't the good news itself, right? Like, I'm not the one... As a preacher, I'm not the one who's, who you should... I'm, I'm hopeful that, in fact, the way in which I teach and preach, I can get out of the way so that you can hear God's Word in a fresh new way, so that it impacts your life and challenges you. If I get in the way of that, then I become the idol, of the, and it's not going to be good. Christ 
is the word. He's the message that Moses was merely a vessel of teaching. And that's the argument that he's trying to make here. You're looking to the servant. Hey, house of Israel, you're looking to the servant and thinking he's high and mighty. And guess what? He was faithful, but he's a messenger. Don't miss the message. Don't don't miss the Savior. Everything he did was to speak to something later. In verse 5, in fact, it says that. That which is spoken later. Look at the end of verse 5. This is the idea of exactly what he's already said in Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, Jesus has spoken to us by, or God has spoken to us by his son Jesus. He is the, the fulfillment, the final word, if you will. Clark, in his commentary, he says, Everything bore a testimony to the things which were to be spoken after. For example, to Christ, to his sufferings, to his death, to the glory which is to follow to all his gospel and all its parts. So the argument here is that the Old Testament, the point of the Old Testament was Jesus. Now I know you may have not read him there. The name Jesus isn't necessarily there, but he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Emmanuel, as in in the book of Isaiah, that's Christ. God with us, Emmanuel. But this whole thing is a setup. That's why you can read the Old Testament and go, wow, there's so much to to glean from this. This is why we would go back and read through the book of Judges. Otherwise, it's just old stuff and why are we doing it? No, because Jesus is on those pages. Because the gospel is there. And that's what the writers, the prophets, that's what these apostles are now saying in every one of these books. That Moses, that King David, the Psalms, these things point to Jesus. And they They paint a picture of our need, partially our need for a Savior, but also they paint a picture of who He will be. And now He has come. All of these are types pointing to Jesus. Now, I could could go name after name and just show you, just foreshadow how every one of these pointed to Christ. Moses points to Christ. Aaron points to Christ. Joseph, before, points to Christ. David, Samuel, these are all types And the Bible is very careful to describe them in such ways that they would point to Christ. So don't miss the message while you're constantly looking at the servant. I'm going to help you apply this in just a second. Jesus, he didn't come to abolish the law. And that's certainly not what's being argued here. He doesn't come to overwrite what's been said by the prophets. No, he came to fulfill all of these things. In fact, that's what he says in Matthew 5. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I am the the answer to the questions you've had as you read your Old Testament. I'm the guy. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. That's that's an I, if you will, in Greek. Uh, An iota, not a dot. That's, that's the markings they'll use in Hebrew. There are lots of dots and tittles. That's very fun, huh? Not, none of that will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. I'm not going to even let one mark of the text go unaccomplished. Wonderful. And when they arrested him, Jesus was aware that he was fulfilling Scripture. In fact, in Mark 14, it says, Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. We love to make people, make messengers our idols rather than the message. 
I'll make a fool of myself enough here to make sure you'll never put me on such a pedestal. I work real hard at it. I'll get behind a drum set. I don't know what I'm doing back there. I don't. I just feel like the, the song needs a beat. So I'm trying. I, I have no interest in being popular. And anybody who's rightly following Christ and being obedient to his word is trying to lift him high and not themselves. Moses would have understood this. In fact, I think very well Moses did. Moses did not want the mantle he received. In fact, he tried, he tried his best not to do it. He very much did not want this type of role. And that was, I think, a big reason why God selected him. It's because God wanted to make his name great so that the people would worship him and get in alignment with him, not with Moses. But guess what the people did? They still screwed it up and saw Moses as some kind of hero rather than the hero himself, Jesus. Look, there's some things. I want to show you just a couple of things that Christ did that are really in direct connection with the story of Moses. Moses gave them water from a rock, and Paul said the rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 4. Moses gave them bread, manna from heaven, and Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, John 6. Moses delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, but Jesus delivers us from the slavery to sin. We just read that in Hebrews 2. Moses lifted up, this is a fascinating story, he lifts up a bronze serpent in the wilderness that Israel might look upon it and be healed. Christ was lifted up on a cruel cross that we would be eternally healed. Everything Moses did was a picture pointing to the Savior. I don't know if this is something any of you struggle with, but it is something I had to wrestle with this week. As I consider Jesus, as I think on Him, meditate on Him, that I would not glorify His servants more than Him. That there's people, guess what? There's people I like to listen to. I listen to certain pastors' podcasts and Even I look at some of these guys like Paul and the disciples, and I'm like, man, these are amazing heroes of the faith. But let me never say to myself, well, I want to be like Paul. I want to be be like my favorite pastor. No, I don't want to say that. I want to be like Jesus. This is why Paul says, the only reason you would imitate me is because I'm imitating Christ. So if you're going to do it, do it because you see me in alignment with him. Don't make Moses, as he's telling the Jews here, don't make Moses your hero. Make Jesus your hero. Who is, who is that for you? This could be someone of faith. This is where we get really distracted sometimes. You know, I, I, I want to I live the way my, my hero does. My, my mentor, I want to be like, no, go, go a long step above that. I mean, a really big leap above that. I want to I walk with Jesus. I want to I know him. Set your sights higher, church. This should be encouraging to you. Don't let your mentors be, be the, the, the height of where you want to go. No, I want to I walk with you, Lord. I want to know you. I want to understand your purpose for me. I want, you to, I want your work to be known in my life. Would you do it? It's not enough that I would be, that I would be like my father or something who's, who's been a good pastor. That's not enough. It's not what God's called me to be. It's not what God's called you to be. Oh man, I, my parents were good parents. Or maybe they were bad. And I'm like, I'm going to be the complete opposite of that. No, set your sights even higher. Consider Jesus. The only command of our text today, consider him above whoever you've got as your model. No, Jesus is your model. And then the third reason. 
because Jesus is the son over God's house. Verses 5 and 6 make this very clear. It's such a good, one more logical argument, if you will. Moses was a, a faithful servant in the house of God, but Jesus is a son over the house of God. Moses is merely a servant in it, just like you and I. We're all servants in the house of God. That's what he's called us to. As his sons and daughters in the faith, we are servants in his house. But Jesus is the son over it, the heir, the one in charge. And then verse 6, one of my favorite verses right now. I've just been chewing on this all week. And we are his house. I love it. We are this house. You've been, he's been describing this house. I didn't see myself in it. And then he makes sure I didn't miss it. Let me not miss it. I'm in the house. I am the house. He's the builder. He's the cornerstone. He's the head of the house. And I'm in this house. I'm thankful for that. Ephesians chapter 2 says, Now you belong to Christ Jesus. At one time you were far away from God. Now you have been brought close to him. Christ did this for you when he gave his blood on the cross. He's brought you near those who were far away. And I was far away and so were you. If indeed you hold fast. Now, I don't know if that causes you to struggle when you read this statement. If indeed you hold fast your confidence. I read a lot of different people writing on this subject trying to figure out if he meant this as a condition of salvation. That if somehow you lose confidence or if somehow you don't hold fast to your hope, if you will. Does this evidence of a condition of your salvation? Most of them agreed, no, it's more like, it's not a condition, it's more like the evidence that you already have it. If you will, here's, here's a way to look at it. Since we are his house, let us hold fast to our confession. That when we look at someone who is holding fast, no matter what's going on in their life, that they say, you know what, but God's in charge. You know what, I'm, I'm going to cling to the faith. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that I've just lost a loved one. It doesn't matter that I'm going through sickness. It doesn't matter that my finances are a mess. It also doesn't matter that I'm on, on the peak right now. I'm at the climax of my career. My life's going well. No matter high or low, I'm holding fast to my faith in Christ Jesus. That is evidence, evidence that you're in the house. Now, you do with that text as you will. It seems to me that's what he's trying to say. It's not... He's not suddenly trying to paint some conditional statement of, oh, well, if you lose hope, that means you've lost your salvation. I don't think that's his intent here. Rather, when you cling to your hope, it's evidence that you're in the house. This confidence, this cheerful courage, this boldness, this assurance, that's what's underneath this word confidence. See, Christ is the builder of... That's what he's done here. He's the builder of, he's the son over, and he's the cornerstone under the house of God. Again, look what God has done. We couldn't accomplish any of this. I'm still, and I've said this before, the fact that you and I are sitting in this room together right now is evidence of what God can do. That 2,000 years later, this motley crew would be sitting together. I've got people from the north, from the south, cool accents. I've got it all. Different backgrounds. And here we are, 2,000 years later, because he is both the builder and the cornerstone. This is our God. This is the one we serve. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are, church, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. 
What's more, you are his holy priests through the meditation or the mediation, excuse me, of Jesus Christ. You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are the house. You are the, high, you're the holy priests in this house. Romans 14, in fact, says, If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord Jesus. We're here for that purpose. So what do I do with this last nugget? I think the word in verse 6, the word over, is the important word of that final one. Who's over the house? Who's over the house? Now, I can tell you right now, I'm not over this house. I'm not. He is. If I ever get that out of alignment, get rid of me quickly. I don't have any, I don't belong here. He is first. He's in charge. He's the high shepherd. I'm just an under shepherd with you. We're ministers of the gospel. He's the administer. He's the shepherd. Who's in charge? Who's in charge at your house is, is someone other than Christ over the house? As you look at your life, who's in charge? This is what, he's, this is what the author is clearly saying to the house of Israel. These Jewish background believers. Is the law still in charge? Moses is the placeholder for the law. The law being the Old Testament, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, sure, but more than that. Since that, as you, you came to faith, you understood, you came to salvation, but have you now decided, well, here's who's in charge. Moses, the, the law's in charge. We know that this is something they're wrestling with. You can read the book of Galatians, you can read the books of 1 Corinthians, several of these epistles, and you can see where the Jewish background believers were trying to figure out, do we still have to deal with the food laws and the circumcision laws? And that's so much of what Galatians is about. And they're trying to figure out who's in charge. And this writer is saying, the son is over the house. Moses, the law, merely a servant in the house. What was the point of the law? What was the point of the Old Testament again? To point to the Savior. The law, in fact, is good. But only for us, only good enough to make us go, I can't do it. That's, it was good enough for me to go, well, I'm a mess. I'm in big trouble. And laws are kind of like that in general, right? You look at these laws and go, well, I can't, I can't quite pull that off. I need someone. These kinds of laws, in fact, these moral kind of laws. And Jesus goes a step further and says, hey, you may have not committed adultery, but if you've lusted in your heart, you've done it in your heart. You, you may have not committed murder, you think, but if you call your brother Raka, which means empty head, you're... You will be a witness from the, of the fire of hell. This is something me and my brother used to say to each other every once in a while. We had just that much Bible understanding to go, did you just call me a name? Fire of hell. You're getting it. Now that's kind of a misinterpretation, but that's what we were dealing with. Jesus says, the way in which you think about things, the way in which it is in your heart, just because you didn't outwardly commit them doesn't mean inwardly you're not a sinful mess. So why does he do that? He says, not because the law is bad, but because you can't do it. So who's over your house? Who have you put in charge? Oh my, my career is what's on top. I gotta be a I gotta be a good parent. I gotta make sure that my children have the best opportunities to succeed. That's not none of these are bad goals. They're the law, though. You can't do them. In fact, I'm convinced. 
that if your goal in life as a parent is to make sure your child is well-rounded and has all the opportunities, but you do all of that absent from the gospel, you've accomplished nothing. Because eternity is a long time. This is a very, very short time. Let's say somehow your child, hallelujah, they get to go on to be the greatest athlete or the smartest person. They invent something fantastic, but they know not Jesus. It's very temporary, their success. Very temporary. Same for you, my friend. Same for you. Have you made the law of the house, the, 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 the leader of the house? It's not enough. Consider Jesus. See that he is worthy. He's in charge. Whether you put him there or not, he's in charge. Might as well line up. And choose what's true. I want to conclude with this. and I actually sang this a few weeks back. Um, but it came to mind again. I couldn't help myself. As I thought about this idea of consider Jesus. It reminded me of an old hymn. I, I, I read a little more about this this week. I get interested in history. Just in general. But this hymn goes back to 1922. It's based on a poem actually. And it's the song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I want to, let's sing it together. A lot of you know it. If you don't know it, just enjoy it for a moment. But it goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. Consider Jesus. What a wonderful poem that became a song. That we would turn, consider Him. Turn our eyes to Him. And what happens? The song tells you that the things of earth grow dim. This is true. And some of you are going through some incredible challenges right now. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus in the light of his glory and grace. He's the builder. He's the fulfillment of the word. And he's in charge, the son over the house. Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you did everything we needed to be right with you. We couldn't accomplish any of this. In fact, what's worse and we, we repent of this. We didn't even know what we needed. We were so far. And that's, that's me. That's, that's your church, Lord. We recognize that this morning, that we were, we were lost without, without a shepherd, without someone to lead us. And in spite of that, you came. You came as the apostle, the one sent, with the message of this good news that God, you would pay the ultimate price that we could be made free, that we could be saved. You did it. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this mercy, this grace, this unconditional love that's just beyond compare. God, we praise you. You are worthy. You are more glory. glory. There's more glory. You are more honorable. All of these things are true of you. Help us now, your church. To live lives that would be glorifying to you. That the way we speak, that that would so shift. Because so often we, we're, trying to, we're trying to boost ourselves. We're trying 
We're trying to look good, so we want to say the right things so that people would think well of us. That's okay. God, I pray that our speech would be seasoned with salt. The salt of this good gospel that people would know there's something different about that Jonathan. He doesn't seem to be about his own agenda. He seems to be, he truly cares about me. It seems like he loves me. And that that the, the love of Christ would pour out in my life, that it would pour out in this church, that people's speech would change. The way we live, that it would be so impacted by the fact that God has set us free. That we know who's in charge. Not, not ourselves, not our spouse, not our parents, not somebody that we idolize, that we look up to know that Christ would be the sinner. Christ would be the sinner and would be on the, the, the seat of our, the throne of our lives. God, remind us of that now. I, I pray for your people today that there's a lot of us in this room that are struggling with who's on, who's on the throne. We may be believers, but we struggle with it all the same. That we've put career or success or, or relationships or parenting or, or, or some, some other form of success or just or comfort. We put so many different things in that seat. God, would you bring that to our mind right now? That we would go ahead right now and just deal with that with you. If that's you today, don't wait any longer. Go ahead and bring that before the Father right now. This is the thing, Lord Jesus. This is the thing that I've been putting over you that's getting more glory than you. And it's killing me. It's a distraction. It's the thing that's, that's keeping me up at night. It's the thing that's giving me heartburn, Lord. I'm, I'm handing it to you now. Lord, I know that throne was not designed for that thing or that person. God, would you take your seat in your rightful place? Dear friend, maybe you've come here today and you've not even taken the first step in this direction. This all sounds kind of interesting and good to you, but you know you've not even in any way put Jesus on the throne of your life. I want to give you an opportunity today, if you feel the Lord calling, that, that you desire to believe today, to give your life to Christ today, that He would be in, in, indeed the Lord, the, the, the leader of your life, the captain the one on the throne of your life. If that's what you desire today, it's a very simple step of faith is how we begin. It says in Romans chapter 10 that if we believe, if we confess, in fact, with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We believe that as a church, that it begins with a step of faith, a confession of faith. If that's you today, pray simply with me. Jesus, I believe you are Lord of my life. You are in charge. You're the builder. You're the creator. You're the founder. And you're over it all. I believe that today. Jesus, I believe you're my savior. You died on the cross for my sake that I could be free. You were lifted up on the cross so that I could be healed. And God, I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. That that resurrection gives me so, so much hope. God, I'm, a, I'm asking now, would you now lead me? Be on the throne of my life. Be the center of what I'm about. Jesus, do that in each and every one of us, that you would be the center of our lives, that you, in fact, would be the thing that most impacts the way we live, the way we work, the way we talk, the way we love.
that Jesus would be the center of it all. Do this in us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.